and good morning. Welcome to The Battles Within. We're glad you're with us today. We're continuing our series entitled, Who is Jesus? This is session number 27. Um, let you know that we are in the process of loading up these series uh, links in our on our website at thebattleswithin.com. You should go and there should be a tab at the top that says, uh, Who is Jesus? If you click on that, it should list all the 27 sessions after today. That'll be in there. We're working on it, so it's a work in progress. But we hope you have a chance to, to uh, if you want to catch up or, or want to go back and listen to some of these others, instead of looking on our YouTube channel and doing a search for it, you should be able to click on the uh, link on our, on our website. So in last week's lesson, uh, the last session that we had, we remember we finished up where Jesus had led the Samaritan people in faith um, in him as the Messiah. This was all done through the help of the woman at the well. You'll remember that uh, she brought the town folks out to see Jesus. Interesting enough, she passed the disciples on their way back out of town where they had gotten food and provisions, but brought nobody with them. She went into town and brought the entire town back. Jesus had a conversation with them, you might remember, that it said, look, you're focused on food. When I have food, you don't even know about. I have the spiritual food, which is more important. Jesus was more focused on the souls than the soul food. He wanted, uh, he wanted them to see that the field was white, ready to harvest as they brought back. So this lost woman who got met the Savior went into town and changed the town because of it. Because of that, the, 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 the Samaritans listened to him. Not only were many saved because of her words, but then it said that many were saved because they came and met Jesus. So she was responsible not only for winning the lost, but she was responsible to bring people to Jesus so that they could hear themselves and they could be saved. You know, we as Christians have that same responsibility. We have the opportunity to witness somebody. We need to do that. Perhaps we have the opportunity to lead them to the Lord. It's a simple process, sharing with them what God did with us. To share with them, we can lead them to the Lord. If you never led anybody to the Lord, you need to do that. You need to be given opportunities to do that. Now, you may plant the seed and others may harvest. That's what Jesus told the disciples. But we were all responsible for planting and harvesting the crop of souls for him. So the Samaritans asked Jesus to stay there for two days. That's unusual. It's kind of shocking in the fact because the Samaritans hated the Jews and vice versa. But in this case, the Jews, the, the, the Samaritans compelled him to stay. So he stayed all of that day and two more days. So he was really there around three days in there. So this is where our quest for who is Jesus will pick up now after he's finished with the Samaritans for two days. John chapter 4 verse 43 says, Now after two days he departed thence. After two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. Now, this means that uh, Jesus stayed with them, we said, like we said, for two more days. Um, so it says, after two days, Jesus sets out to return to Galilee. Galilee, as you remember, was the northern part 
of the um, region of Judea, primary considered at that time kind of the backwater regions. I did a little bit of research on Galilee, and Galilee was uh, really an area where it was somewhat a metropolitan area. There was a lot of, there was number of Roman cities in Galilee that was pretty much dominated by Roman rule. And then uh, you had the rest of Galilee that was somewhat independently run through uh, Caesar Antipatus. Uh, he kind of ran that region. So they had multiple really kind of governments overseeing things. Remember, it was all under Roman law, but Roman uh, Romans gave certain areas of their of their um, kingdom uh, the ability to rule themselves as long as they didn't you know do anything against Rome. Uh, you know, they paid their taxes. That's as long as they did it in Rome and they paid their taxes, and that's all they cared about. Well, so the Galilee had a large population of Gentiles. Gentiles and Jews, yes, and Orthodox Jews, but some of the Jews had been somewhat, they had grown uh, not quite as Orthodox, you could say. And as a result of that, the Jews in Jerusalem, who were, you know, the, the pious group of people, they looked down upon the people in Galilee. We'll know that uh because we know that that's one of the things that we will see later as we talk about it. You know, we, the, remember that later on, the Pharisees dismissed Jesus because they say that he was came out of Galilee, and they said no great prophet has ever come out of Galilee, which, by the way, we're going to show you is not true. So the statement the Pharisees made was not true at all. In John seven fifty three, the Pharisees told Nicodemus, uh, they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arrived no prophet. Now, I don't know what they're talking about because five prophets came out of Galilee. And these were famous prophets. Jonah, Nahum, Hosea, Jer Elijah, and Elisha. Now, surely they knew Elijah and Elisha. But anyway, so... And also, they forgot something else. So they, they, when they said that phrase about Jesus could not be born because born out of Galilee, no great prophet came out of Galilee. That wasn't true. But second of all, they didn't recognize that he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He didn't come out of Galilee. He came out of Bethlehem. Um, he was raised in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. And so therefore, Jesus was called Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he grew up at, but that's not where he came from. So the Pharisees just assumed that he was born in Galilee. The Pharisees were adamant, as we said, that no prophet came out of Galilee because they thought that it was proof that Jesus uh, was not a prophet, nor could he be the Messiah. And uh, they knew that the Scripture said that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, and he was obviously not. So therefore, they said that he was not, but he was born in Bethlehem. Now, so the Pharisees, we see, were wrong on two points. They're wrong that no prophet came from Galilee, which is clearly not the case, and that Jesus couldn't be Messiah because he wasn't born in Bethlehem, but he was. <laughs> uh, so, nevertheless, the Jews in Jerusalem were self-important elitists and had privileges. So they looked their nose down at Galilee because Galileans were somewhat more friendly to the Jews. They didn't hate the Gentiles, I mean. They were more, they grew, they, they entered 
claimed, yes, they had their religion and these other people had their religion and they really didn't, you know, they didn't have a problem being neighbors and being friendly, whereas the Jews shunned all the Jewish, the Orthodox Jews shunned any Gentiles. Uh, which is interesting that God would place his son in an area that was not prejudiced towards people as bad. So that Jesus grew up in an environment where they were they were interfacing with people from all over the world. I and mean, like I said, a metropolitan area. It's interesting that Jesus' greatest ministries and most of his ministries took place in Galilee, which would be kind of that he took place in, in ministering to the people of the world. And Jesus came, remember the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world, not the Jews, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we, we know that this was an important thing to show that Jesus was not a respecter of person. But anyway, so we know Jesus also spent his time in Galilee because the people, the Galileans, had a softer heart. They were not as they were not so tied up with all the Jewish rituals that you had to do all these things, all these things. Now they tried to obey them as much as possible, but there wasn't that evil eye like in Jerusalem of those scribes and Pharisees who oversaw their every move uh, as there was in Jerusalem. Verse 44 of John. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. So John tells us that Jesus himself stated that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And the Greek word country can also mean home city. This kind of leaves us with three possibilities. What does he mean? Has no because he had some prop he had some uh, some some uh, honor in his country of Galilee, but and even in Jerusalem people followed him. But as we will see, he had no honor in Jerusalem in, in Nazareth. So let's look. There's three possibilities. Some people think that this was Jerusalem, you know, the home, the home city of the Messiah, in a sense that uh, the David was the throne of David was in that city, and so therefore, if he's the Messiah, if he's the king of the, if he's David's heir, then Jerusalem is his city, and they clearly did not accept him. And so, therefore, that could have been the place that he's talking about when he said no honor. Therefore, he's not going to Jerusalem. He's going to Galilee to preach. Some think that it could be Galilee itself because uh, some would think that the, the whole region of Galilee, because even though he had lots of uh, uh, people healed and a lot of people uh, you know, came to know him in that time period, that was only a spit in the bucket, you could say of the number of people that lived in Galilee region. Matter of fact, we'll see later on that Jesus actually puts a curse on Capernaum because of their unbelief, because all the great things that was done in that city. So therefore, Galilee could be perceived as no prophet. You know, prophet doesn't have any, uh, um, as he said, uh, the prophet has no honor in his own country. Then, but then, then you also have Nazareth. You know, the word country here said his own country. The word patri, which is father in Greek or Latin, means his fatherland, the place of his ancestors came from. And, you know, and Jesus' mother and father came from Nazareth. They were from Nazareth. They were from Nazareth. It's, you, 
And by the way, this is used six times in the gospel and always refers to Nazareth. Uh, you know, we'll see next week or next session where Jesus actually goes into Nazareth and preaches for his first time. And we see that they're going to try to stone him and kill him. So clearly, I believe that the correct understanding for this verse was that Jesus doesn't go directly to Nazareth. That's why he doesn't go directly to Nazareth when he comes back into Galilee. He didn't go back home. He didn't go back to Nazareth where he was at, where, his, where he grew up at, where his brothers and sisters were still living. He didn't do that because he said a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came into Galilee, then he makes a statement. So that makes sense, right? I mean, you think about it. Because if you look again quickly back to the verse that we just read, now after two days he departed and went into Galilee, and then he makes that statement in verse 44, for Jesus himself said that a prophet hath no honor in his own country, would make sense that he didn't go into Nazareth. So we see that. Um, so let's look at verse 45. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went into the feast. So we see Jesus travels back into the Galilean region. He does not go back to Nazareth because he knows they won't accept him because there's no honor in his own country. But as he's traveling back, he's greeted uh, by the approving crowds. I mean, people were excited to see him. Many of these same people had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. Uh, they witnessed what Jesus had done there, uh, you know, the cleansing of the temple. You know, they probably all had, had disgusted by what was being done, and they saw someone finally taking charge of it. Uh, they saw the many miracles that he performed there while he was there. Uh, they probably had been waiting for Jesus to make his way back home as a hometown hero. They've been waiting for him. When he comes back, we're going to have a celebration. Now, this explains why Jesus spent so much time in the region in his early ministry, because he was well accepted, because he had a lot of fruit there. Uh, he went where he saw the Spirit working, for that was his mission. Um, he went to Jerusalem to die, and that was where the prophets were killed, but he went to Galilee to minister and to win the lost. Uh, he returns so Jesus returned, went to Galilee, returning to his healing ministry. Verses 46 through 47. So Jesus came again into Canaan of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of, Gal out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So, Jesus' mention of Canaan puts Jesus right back where he started his ministry in chapter 2. So, remember, in chapter 2 of John was where Jesus began his ministry by turning the water into wine. You know, he said, one of my time has not yet come, but he did what he had to do. So, he sees he started off by turning the water into wine, and now he's back in Canaan again after having gone through all the things that he did, having gone through Jerusalem, have done all those things. He comes back to Jerusalem again. It's kind of like the ending, full circle of his early, of his early ministries. Because after this, we see he kicks off a new phase of his ministry. But we see what John did was he wanted the reason to understand about Jesus' early ministry. That's why John did this. John did a full circle here. 
He had two conversations that we saw in these four chapters, these two verse, two chapters. The first was Nicodemus. You know, among the Jews in Jerusalem, there was suspicion, dismissal, and ignorance of an ignorance of Jesus' identity. Uh, you know, later this would turn out into outright hostilities. A few of the Nicodemus, a few like Nicodemus, came to faith, but there were very few of these devout Jews who became Christians. Most of them did not receive him among the Jews in Jerusalem at all. So we saw that conversation with those people. Then we see the Samaritans. These are outcast people. So he dealt with the religious crowd first. And he tried to share with them the truth of his word. And they, they, they were able to see the miracles. But yet, they didn't ask him to stay. The Samaritans, on the other hand, were outcasts, the poor, the Gentiles. And Jesus finds a ready and receptive audience. These people turn time and again to seek him and seek his word and seek his healing. This explains why Jesus spent most of his years in Galilee, uh, in the northern region rather than in Jerusalem. As Jesus returned to Galilee, he is met by a royal official in need of healing for his dying son. So some nobleman, somebody who worked for King, evidently King Herod Antipatus. Um, they were a, an official. You know, King Atip, uh, Herod Antipatus was actually a self-appointed king because he wasn't, the question is whether he was even a Jew. Um, now, it's unclear whether this uh, nobleman was a Gentile or a Jew, but it's really irrelevant. The official says that his son lives in Capernaum. Well, Capernaum is 17 miles away from Canaan. So this man traveled 17 miles just to see Jesus. And it makes sense that Capernaum, by the way, was the seat of the Roman rule in Judea. Uh, so it would make sense that, that that would be where the man was, that, that his son would be. Um, we know, like, you know, it says 17 miles. This man is clearly desperate for anything that might save his son. So the man travels to see Jesus when he heard that Jesus was returning. When he heard the news that Jesus was coming back, he traveled. Now, it's interesting to me that if this nobleman knew that Jesus was coming back into the region, then King Herod Antipatus should have known that also. But we know later on in the story, many sessions to come, we'll know that he wanted to find out more about Jesus. He had heard all these stories about Jesus. But he wanted. it's interesting, he's the king. Why did it take him so long? That's the story I always have, but clearly his nobleman knew about it. So clearly the people in the king's court were aware of Jesus. They were aware of Jesus and what Jesus was doing. By the way, they were also not threatened by Jesus. Never do we see anything threatened by Jesus. Matter of fact, even whenever the persecution occurs for Jesus and his crucifixion, King, uh, King Antipodus did not, he didn't even accuse Jesus. He sent him back. So the point is, he never had conflict with the Roman Empire over what Jesus did because Jesus was not here to, to pervert governments. What he was here was to win the lost. It was not his time set in the earthly kingdom. Anyway, John 48 through 49. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down ere my child dies. So he makes his request, but Jesus says, you know what? Let me tell you, 
the the people are consistently requesting signs and wonders before they believe. You know, if you do this, I'll do that. If you do this, I'll do that. You know, if God can do this, then I'll do this. If he can do that, then I'll trust in him. And Jesus said, you know, he wants to see that, that, that here this man was willing to travel all the way from Capernaum to Canaan, 17 miles, which took about a two-day journey to get there to see Jesus because he said he had faith that Jesus could heal his child. Well, if Jesus said, if he had faith that Jesus could heal his child, then could not Jesus heal his child from wherever he was? See, John wants us to see something more about Jesus. Jesus did not have to be in the presence of this nobleman's son to heal him. Why? Because Jesus is God. And God is everywhere. You say, yes, but Jesus was only in one place. He temporarily set aside his omnipresence. Yes, he did set aside his omnipresence. However, he never set aside his omnipotence, his omnipotence or his omniscience. He said those abilities. Jesus is God. Jesus can do what he wants to do with thought. A simple thought can change things. He clearly knew uh, He knew uh, the, the disciple under the tree before he got there. He knew the woman at the well before she got there. He could see her past, her present. He could see all those things. He could tell her everything. The Bible says he told her everything she ever did. So it was more than what's recorded. John only recorded the things that we needed to know. There's some things he might not want us to know because they're private between the, the, the uh, woman at the well and Jesus. Because see, Jesus sees our inner sins. He doesn't just, he doesn't want, everybody doesn't have to know it. We can confess our sins to him. Now, if we have open sin that the world knows about, we need to repent of that sin openly. But our private sins, our secret sins, we keep with us. Jesus takes care of those. So we see this man here, he came to Jesus because he wanted him to come back with him. He felt the only way Jesus could save somebody was for him to physically be there. But this man had faith that Jesus could heal. He Evidently, he had total faith in the fact that this man could heal. But he believed that Jesus was limited because he was a man. He had not recognized him as God. See, God is not limited by time or space. So therefore, God can do anything, anytime, anywhere. He doesn't need to be here or there because he's already everywhere. You know, David said, if I ascend to the highest heaven, thou art there. If I descend to the lowest hell, thou art there. There's nowhere you can go where God is not. See, but this man had not quite comprehended that Jesus was God. He believed Jesus had the ability. He believed Jesus was a man of God, but he didn't understand that Jesus was God. So Jesus had to let us understand that not only can Jesus heal people, he can heal at any time. So Jesus wanted us to see that this man's willingness to travel and insisted on him bringing him back. Jesus and John, obviously, is the writer. By the way, he's the only one who put the story in the, in the Word out of the four Gospels. He wanted people to know that Jesus did not have to be physically present to heal. It's important. It's important to us because Jesus is not physically present here in our midst. He's spiritually present in our midst of the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't have to be physically here. We don't have to wait for Jesus to rise from the dead or come back to the, from heaven to come here to heal people. He can heal you anytime. If this man truly were to operate in faith in Jesus as the Messiah, then he wouldn't need Jesus to return physically. The fact is, the man would not have needed to even come to the trip himself. All he had to do was pray for healing from his for for uh, for his child beside the bedside. 
Now, you understand that takes a lot of faith. If Jesus is capable of healing a human body, then he's clearly capable of operating on supernatural ways, right? If he can heal somebody, surely he can operate supernaturally. Time and space would not be an obstacle. So faith in Jesus' Lord would not require that a man physically come to Jesus and not that Jesus would have to physically come to him. You know, we're saved today. Jesus comes to us spiritually speaking. We don't have to have him physically come to us. But don't we do that same thing today? You know, we seek some kind of sign to bolster our faith that God can do miracles instead of simply trust him. It's one thing to believe that Jesus could heal, but it's another to believe that Jesus was God who could heal without barriers. And John wanted us to understand that. <coughs> Excuse me. John wanted us to know that. Jesus could direct supernatural outcomes through the Spirit of God. Remember, Jesus has the Holy Spirit exercise those things. Jesus healed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if he did things of his own accord, then he would not have been man. So therefore, the healing powers that Jesus had came from the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, what you see me do, you can do greater things than these. Because we can heal people through the Holy Spirit. Now, do we do that by laying on hands on people? We do that at the altar. We have people come up. We lay hands on them. But it's the power of the Spirit that does the healing. Not anything we do. Our laying on the hands, our praying, our doing whatever, doesn't matter. I mean, we're following faithfulness. I don't mean that. I'm saying we don't, our physical actions is not what saves or heals. It's our faith in those actions of what God promises that allows the Holy Spirit to do His work because He promised us those things. And God's promises are true. See, Jesus could direct supernatural outcomes through the Spirit of God. Belief in Christ's healing power from a distance became a distinguishing characteristic of true faith. That Jesus can heal us wherever we are. Wherever we are at. Under whatever circumstances. Believing that Jesus could heal from anywhere meant acknowledging him as God. See, if he was just a good man that could touch somebody and they could be healed, he had a supernatural within himself. Does not make him supernatural. But to be able to heal somebody without even touching him, without even being 17 miles away, is something that only God can do. Verse 50, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. The man's son got healed because the man had faith in the word of Jesus. See, the man, Jesus grants the man his request for healing. And, and the man believed Jesus could heal. He had total confidence that he could do it. His issue was that he only thought Jesus could do it in person because he did not recognize, as we said, that Jesus is God and therefore he can exercise his will anywhere he chooses. So Jesus declares that the man's son is healed. Go thy way and believe. He said, say to them, go thy way. Thy son liveth. Thy son is healed, is what he's saying, at that moment. I've already healed him. Boom, it's done. And it said that the man believed. You know, we the 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 prayers of a of a righteous man, the the the, the prayers of faith. 
That's what makes the difference. This man believed Jesus could heal his son from 17 miles away. And he said, and the man believed the word and he went his way. He had two days to travel. He turned around. If he did not believe Jesus could do it distance-wise, he would not have left Jesus behind. He'd already traveled two days to get there. He was earnestly pleasing with him, but when he heard the words of Jesus and he met Jesus face to face, he had faith that Jesus could do whatever he said he did. And so if he, when he told him that, he said he believed. And Jesus declared the man was healed. Jesus hasn't given him a sign as he required. He didn't give him a sign. The man believed without a sign. He just believed by the word. He believed the word of Jesus. He didn't have to have a sign. Folks, today we can believe the word of Jesus. We don't have to have a sign. Jesus made a declaration to test the man's faith. If the man truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was God, was the Son of God, then he would leave knowing that the man, that Jesus had the power. And the man did that. Verse 50, we're told that the man believed Jesus' word. Now, isn't this the biblical definition of saving faith? You know, just as Abraham believed the word of God and was declared righteous, he believed God's word. Abraham never saw the things that God had promised him. He never saw the great multitude. Now, he had children in his latter days, but he never saw the, the children as many seas of the sand of the ocean, the stars at night. He never saw that. He never saw David sitting on the throne while he was alive in this world. But he believed what God said and was counted on him to righteousness. This man believed the word of Jesus, just like Abraham did. He believes that his son had been healed by the word of Jesus Christ. Not by some action that was taken, but by the word of God. You know, if he had any doubt at all, he wouldn't have left and go back 17 miles. He wouldn't have risked the possibility that the son had not been healed. But he had total faith. Uh, saving faith is always confident in the things hoped for. Remember Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This man demonstrated true faith. He demonstrated the substance of things hoped for. He believed in Jesus. He believed his word. And therefore, he didn't have to see it to believe it because he had already believed it. This man is convinced that, he, that what he hoped for has come to pass based solely on Jesus' word. Nothing else. No signs, no wonders. He believed his word. Saving faith is always that way, isn't it? We, we hope for the resurrection that follows our death. We hope for it, but we believe it. We believe those that are dead are opening up their eyes in the bosom of Abraham. That they're, they open up their eyes to be absent from the bodies who are present with the Lord. We all believe it. We know the hope of the resurrection. We know that one day we will be restored. We know that one day we'll have a new body. We know that one day we will live in Him forever. Why? Because we have that blessed hope. We have that faith. We have what that verse says. Faith in some things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. <coughs> I have a message I want to preach one day entitled, How to Lose Your Faith and Look Forward to It. How to lose your faith. See, when you get to heaven, you don't need faith anymore. You don't need faith anymore. Faith cannot operate in heaven. Why? Because it's the evidence of the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. No, we will see it. 
We don't need faith anymore. We will be there experiencing it. We don't need faith. Those who are saved will not need faith in the future. Their faith will get them to where they need to go, and then they will have the evidence that they need from there on out. You know, today, uh, uh, we haven't seen things yet to come, and we still maintain the confidence because we have faith in the word of the Lord. We have faith in what the Bible says. We have faith. This man had faith. Verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. The official leaves and returns to Calpurnium. And as he's going on his way, uh, traveling by foot, on the, it says that the as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, We don't know. I'm assuming that the servants were coming to meet, coming to tell the nobleman that his son had been healed, was well, before the them get so how far was it? You know, some say it was two days. Well, no, I don't think he waited until he got back to Capernaum because it says his servants met him and told him. So I'm assuming that his servants were excited about the news and started coming that way. So it's possibly it's somewhere between Capernaum and uh, between Capernaum and uh, 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 um, Canaan is where they met. So maybe a day later. John four fifty two. Then inquired he him of them when he began to amend, and they said, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the man hears the news, and he immediately asked, When did this take place? When did this happen? Now the purpose of his question is to test Jesus' word. Jesus said he's healed. Was he healed at that exact moment? Was that the reason or was this a coincidence? In a sense, he continues to seek a sign in a way. Uh, but he's told that the fever left at the seventh hour, which is a specific moment, a specific event, at the time he was speaking with Jesus. The suddenness of the healing was remarkable. The servants knew exactly the right moment. It wasn't when he got started getting better about the seventh hour. It said, no. It says, it says here that yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. It didn't start waning. It left him instantly. Something Happened. What happened? Jesus happened. Jesus happened. The very moment it happened. The confirmation was a sign to this man that Jesus did as he promised. You know, in this case, his desire for a sign followed his faith rather than preceding his faith. See, he had faith that Jesus would heal. He had faith that Jesus would heal. And then... He, had, uh, uh, he wanted to see the results. He wanted to see the signs that Jesus did as he said he did. We do that too, don't we? We pray that God will do something. And then we're looking for the sign that it's done. Right? We're looking for the sign. If we ask for God to heal somebody and they get better, then we know that God did what we asked him to do. If we ask for a job to feed our families, and then we get a job, we see God answer that prayer. We see the sign after the fact. There's nothing wrong with seeking signs that God completed the task. It's another thing to seek a sign before you have faith. See, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there's, the, that, 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 there's a difference between seeking a sign in advance. Uh, it's the proof we lack faith altogether when you do that. So our request for signs become a barrier to faith if you aren't careful. 
It says verse 53. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus saith unto him, Thy son liveth, and he himself believed, and his whole household. So the official learned that his son was healed at the precise moment that he was speaking with Jesus, and he believed in all his household. Now, we need to understand the statement. The man believed because he had experienced. He believed totally. He already had faith that Jesus could heal. He already had faith that Jesus healed his son from that far away. But now, having seen the sign of his faith in action, he totally believed and he became a believer of Jesus Christ. And then because of his belief, because of his testimony, his family got saved. You know what? If you get saved today, if your family's not saved, you can lead them to the Lord yourself. Because if you're living a life, you've got to sacrifice. Make your life a life of Christ so that they see Christ in you. The rich man who died, Lazarus, you might remember the story of the Lazarus and the rich man. And when the rich man died, Lazarus died and was taken up by angels and put in Abraham's bosom. But the rich man died and he said he opened his eyes in torment. And he asked if you could send somebody back to tell my brothers my, that they, they don't come to this awful place. See, the testimonies of the family can make a difference. If that man, if that king had been concerned about his family, he'd have got right with God before his time was up. And then he could have shared with them about Jesus. Your family members, you have the greatest opportunity to win your family over anybody else if your family members are lost. So he says... We need to understand that the first man believed in Jesus' promise during the moment of crisis. He believed in Jesus. He appealed to Jesus and Jesus declared the son healed. The man left believing in Jesus' potential to save and the hope that the healing would happen just as Jesus promised. Then the official hears the news of his son. His faith is strengthened. He already had faith. Now he had total faith. This moved him from a faith found in crisis to a faith formed in confidence. Now he had confidence that Jesus would do whatever he needed to do. The signs of instant healing caused the man's faith to grow strong and assured. From this point forward, he would never have doubt in Jesus' word or his claim again. He, had, he lost that doubt anymore. He knew Jesus could do miraculous things. And because of his contagious faith, others in his family followed through the supernatural blessing of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit led them. That's why we hear that the man's household, all the household believed because the man made a difference. Now it's interesting, remember, he's in King Antipodus's court. Herod Antipodus' court. So you know that this is being spread around because this man's whole half-family got saved. John is simply emphasizing the strength of this man's faith when he says the whole family got saved. Now they saw the healing as well, and so it no doubt bolstered their faith as well. They all believed. John 4.54, it says, This again, the second miracle, this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea unto Galilee. See, John ends this part by saying that this was the second sign that he performed. Remember the first one? first one was when he turned the water into wine in Canaan. It was done in secret 
before he wanted to do it, but he did it within the, 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 there was nothing wrong with doing it, but he did it before the time, but it showed the second, the, the first was turning the water to wine. Now these signs reflect that Jesus as the creator. The first sign was that John wanted people to see that Jesus was the creator because he could turn water into wine. He is the creator. You know, one that can physically turn a substance into another or just simply heal with a word demonstrates him to be the creator. John wanted them to see that Jesus was the creator. Together, these two, two miracles kind of form a circle in Jesus' early ministry. Uh, it starts off, as we said, with the miracle of saving this person, uh, uh, the host of the wedding, by showing the water and the wine. And it ends with the father seeking Jesus to heal the son. The first sign is done in private, but causes the disciples to believe. And the second is done in private and causes the officials' families to believe. But together, these things show the deity of Jesus. The entire narrative between the two miracles highlight the power of God in Jesus. His creative power is on display in the water and the wine, his authority over the temple in teaching what was evident in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, his omniscience with evidence with the Samaritan woman, his healing power over time and space was evident with the official son. They all summed up Jesus' time in Galilee before gaining the unhelpful attention of the Pharisees. So we see John shows us who Jesus is. The creator the healer, the omniscient God, the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, the everywhere-present God. He has the ability to do things just by faith in Him. So that's what John wanted us to see. Jesus shows mercy on people of all kinds. He showed that through the Samaritans. His teaching His disciples that they are to seek the lost as well. He showed that at the woman at the well. Don't get so tied down with the fleshly things of this world that you can't see that people are dying and need a Savior. So Jesus displayed himself to be God through miracles that can be nothing less. All this took place in these first two chapters of, from John chapter 2 versus John chapter 4. We showed us who Jesus is. Now, Next time, we're going to take a look at Jesus' trip back to his hometown. Remember, he already said that a prophet is not can do no great things in his hometown. We'll see that next time. Thank you for your time and your attention today. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity we have that we can study your word. I thank you, Lord, that you show us through the story of the nobleman's son that John included that the time and space means nothing gives us the knowledge that, Lord, when we pray over people, we know your prayers can be answered. No matter whether they're there or not, you're everywhere. So, Lord, we know time and space means nothing to you. So we pray right now for those who are sick, those who are struggling, those, Lord, who are struggling physically, spiritually, financially. Lord, we pray for them right now that your, your Holy Spirit would reach out and touch them and give them the guidance that they need. I thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord, now that as we leave this message, you help us understand, Lord, who Jesus is so that we might be better able to share that knowledge with others. For it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
I thank you again for your time and your attention today. It is a great thing to study the Word of God. Uh, His Word is powerful and true. And we know that um, if we stay in it, we benefit. So thank you. We'll look forward to seeing you next time.